I'm Evan Knappen, and welcome to Gun Lawyer. So, you know, I just received, man, and I'm very excited about it, my Randall 75th Anniversary Model 17 Astro Knife. Yeah, Randall Knives is a great maker of knives. I'm sure many of you have heard the name Randall. And they came out with a special commemorative, which is rare. They rarely do commemoratives. This was commemorating their 75th anniversary. And this 75th anniversary knife they chose is their Model 17 Astro. Now, the 17 Astro is a very special Randall because it was a knife designed by Gordon Cooper, you know, for the seven astronauts on the Mercury Project. And it went into space, this knife, and it was designed with Cooper and with Bo Randall, and these were the handmade Randalls. And uh, this model, you know, really has amazing space history uh, to it, and it made sense that they would honor that with this special uh, commemorative knife. And uh, it's very cool, and I love Randalls. And it got me thinking about how I got started in knives, and I realized that you know, I was interested in knives before guns. Actually, knives were my gateway weapon. I guess would be the way to describe it. And going way back, I said, when did I first have a knife? And I started thinking, so you know what? My first knife was when I was in Cub Scouts. Right? So about eight years old, I guess, or so, Cub Scouts. And my dad gave me his Swiss Army knife. Now, this was a Swiss Army knife that he had acquired on his honeymoon in Bermuda. And, of course, a kid with a Swiss Army knife has got to be, like, the coolest thing ever. And I love that knife. And you know what? I still have that knife, believe it or not, that my dad gave me. And it had all the cool Swiss Army knife features. And I used it for all kinds of things, you know whittling and cutting and everything. And, of course, I cut myself pretty good with it, you know, pretty much down to the bone on my thumb, and you learn the hard way. And uh, all those adventures with the Swiss Army knife is this kind of introduction to, to knives. And I remember, so somewhat after that, not too long, but a little bit after, I was trick-or-treating with a friend. And we were going around to the different houses, collecting all the candy that we could. And my friend says, hey, I have a knife, you know. And I said, oh, really? What do you have? Because I have one. I have a Swiss Army knife. And he's like, no, look at this. And he goes in his pocket, and he takes out this very long, thin-blade, long pocket knife. And what, what it actually was is what's called a fruit knife or a melon knife. They're, they're almost like pencil, like the, the size of a pencil in its thickness. And the blade is pretty long, relatively speaking, for a pocket knife, you know, a good four or five inches, but very, very narrow. And it's mainly used for cutting, you know, melons and fruit. 
But I remember as a kid, he takes out this knife and he and he opens it up, and I'm like, "Wow, that is really cool! Look at the size of this blade!" And I thought that fruit knife was neato, and you know, I didn't know at the time what what it actually was, and I just thought it was a really cool knife with this long, thin blade. So uh, I would go with my dad every weekend to the flea markets, and specifically the English Town Flea Market, which was a really fantastic flea market in its day and my dad collected many things but focused on political items As a matter of fact he wrote the warman's guide to collecting political americana and uh, most of what he collected when to write that book he bought at flea markets and used his knowledge to find these things and so i went with him and a great time with my dad on these great weekends father-son time, and I remember going to flea market there as a kid, and I found a guy that had one of these fruit knives, and it was like $4 or something, maybe two, I don't remember, but I was able to buy it, and I was so thrilled to have one of these and was just fascinated by it, and by going to the flea market with my dad, I saw even those days there was a lot of different sellers of different knives, so I kind of became a knife collector by default going to the flea markets and in those days there were, it was before of course all the imports from china and it was before a lot of those things and what what there was was inexpensive relatively speaking knives from japan in those days the, the inexpensive stuff came from japan and there was a seller there that had japanese knives, you know, new, reasonable. And he had this uh, black handle stiletto type Japanese knife that was a lock blade, looked like a switchblade, but it was a lock blade, but decent size. And when he showed me this, even as a kid, I was like, oh, wow, a lock blade. Now that's a great idea, considering I had cut my thumb with the Swiss Army knife and the fruit knife wasn't a lock blade. And the idea that a blade would lock just was great because I realized instantly how much safer and better the knife would be with that. And so that made me think along those lines, and I, I bought these knives, and I built up a nice little collection of knives as a kid. And I kept going and doing that, and one day my dad comes into me at, at, at home, and he says, you know, you've been collecting these knives and all, but a lot of them, they're just inexpensive and some of them are interesting. But really, why don't you think about getting a really great knife? And I'm like, what do you mean? And he hands me a Randall catalog. And I must have been at that point maybe 15. And he hands me a Randall catalog. And I'm like, what's, I didn't even know what they were. And I'm like, I don't even know how my father knew about them. He wasn't a knife guy per se, but somehow he got a hold of a Randall catalog and said, Evan, look at these. This is something you should buy and invest in. These are really quality. So I read through that Randall catalog, and man, what a great catalog on knives. And you can still get one. You can still get the Randall catalog today free. Go to Randall's website. They'll send you this great catalog for free about their custom, you know, hand-built custom knives. They're just great. And I remember back then the knife was somewhere around $70 for what's called the 
the Model 1 all-purpose fighting knife. And that Model 1 looked so good, and it just hit me. I said, I got to save up for that. So I really saved. And I'll tell you, today, if you order a Randall from the factory, there's a five-year wait to get it, five years. Now, back then, it was about six to nine months, give or take, about nine months on the outside, nine months. And so I saved up, and I bought that Randall Model 1, and really, it was like, you know, a fortune for me as a kid to save up, but there you go. And boy, that came in, and that knife was such a beautiful, it was absolutely the most incredible knife I owned, and I just loved that Randall. And man, it showed me the difference of just what a quality handmade knife can be. And so uh, I uh, ended up, like, the following year or so, going on a trip through Florida with my high school. It was a bike hostel. And we were all on our bicycles. And it was about, I don't know, 15 or 16 of us uh, high schoolers with the biology teacher and her husband doing a bike hostel through Florida from Jacksonville all the way down through to Orlando, all on our bikes with camping gear. It was quite an undertaking, I must say, and I think she swore never to ever do that again, but it was very interesting. So uh, when we got there, I was, uh, you know, most of us, we all had 10 speeds. That was the thing in those days, the English racers and what have you, and we were all pretty well geared up except for one person on this bike trip. And this one person, her name was Tracy. She actually came on this bike hostel to do all these miles through Florida with camping gear on a bicycle with a three-speed Raleigh bike. It was unbelievable. All of us had, were ready to do this right, and she has this. And the teacher, knowing I was a responsible sort of person, and I was there with another buddy of mine. She said, look, you got to make sure that Tracy makes it to camp every night. So you've got to be the end of the line. Here we thought we'd have a great time zipping through Florida. Now, our, now my job was to make sure that her on this three-speed made it in. And this buddy of mine, he stayed with me to help. His name was Tommy Kreitler. Now, Tom Kreitler has his own radio show. Today, Tommy Kreitler has, is the host, he co-hosts the nationally syndicated uh, The Money Pit. That's a home improvement radio show. And he's a great guy, but this we're both kids, and we're, our job now is to make sure that, uh, that she makes it to camp. So we followed along, and we took our time, and we'd stop in at uh, various can, stores along the way and relax there in Florida and just took it easy and uh, had a good time and just making sure that she did it. And one of the these days we're riding and I look up and we were on the Orange Blossom Trail and I see Randall made knives. And then it hit me. I totally didn't put it together that this knife that I love was made here in 
Florida, and this is the place where it was made. So I said, look, man, we got to go in here. I got to see. I got to talk. This is great. I didn't realize Randall was here. So I pulled in on our bikes, and we went in, and Randall shop there, had the museum in the shop. And I went in, and that's when I first met Bo Randall. And he was the nicest guy, and he saw uh, my buddy and I, and he personally gave me a tour of the shop and the museum, and it was just great. And when I look back now, I realize just how incredibly special that was, that it just happened to work out in that way. But, man, it was great. And if you get down to Florida, check out their knife museum now, and they moved it to the to Bo's actual home there, and it's beautiful. There's really great stuff. And you can actually see the Astro Model 17 that Gordon Cooper took into space and brought back. And you can get right up close and look at that knife that actually went into space because he had uh, given it back to Bo uh, in honor of his work. So it's pretty cool. And anyway, uh, we finished that bike hostel. I remember one of the other places we stopped were these junk shops just for fun. And in one of the junk shops, they had a... Uh, a cattle prod and it was like a dollar you know and so we bought it and with a black magic marker we wrote tracy prod on it so that was a tracy prod so we could try to keep her going you know make it into camp every night but uh after that and randall and building up ended up finding what would become my uh, everyday carry back then what we called the edc and the uh and prior to that, my um, my mother had and father had bought me a birthday gift of a Buck 110. Now, you all know the classic Buck 110 that you'd wear on your belt. And that was a good knife, and I still have that one, and I enjoyed it. But, you know, you had to carry it on the outside of your belt. And along comes Gerber with their folding sportsman. And that became a pocket knife of choice. They had the drop point Gerber and this nifty little gadget that you could buy called a Flicket. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the old Flicket, but the Flicket actually went on the spine of the blade of the pocket knife and made it so you could, particularly with the Gerber, you could open the Gerber with one hand because it had like a little lever on it. And by putting these flickets on the Gerbers, it was the first version of the one-hand opening EDC of popular popular note back then. And this was before there was even the idea of a tactical pocket knife or anything along those lines. That was as good as it as it got. And those knives are good. The Gerber the Gerbers performed well. They were good. The flickets actually worked. I still have my old Gerber with the old Flicket even. And I ended up getting a job working in a knife shop. I ended up working at Herder's Cutlery in the mall. I don't know if you remember Herder's Cutlery, but uh, they were in a number of malls. You know, at the time, you used to be able to find knife shops in malls. You had Hoffritz and Herder's and 
and such. And now they've pretty much dried up and gone away. But that's where I worked. I worked in the knife shop on the weekends and part-time. And it was interesting to work in a knife shop in those days because it was right at the beginning of kind of the explosion of folding knives and their popularity, particularly uh, ones that you could open with one hand and and carry. And that's where we saw the first Spydercos come in with the hole that you can open with one hand. And the particularly the very popular police model came out. And uh, these Spydercos were very popular and ended up... Uh, you know, putting the old Gerber away and having a Spyderco for a while with the with the hole and fascinated how great that worked to uh, have a one-hand opening. And then uh, this other up-and-coming company, Almar, came out. They had that beautiful line of Almars with the white handles. And one day a guy comes in from Almar, kind of a sales rep. He says, oh, you work in a knife store. You can order one of these special eagle models that have rosewood handle and a sterling silver insert and they're just doing them limited and since you work in it you can order one and i'm like well i love that i so i actually got one of those way back still have it uh haven't worked in that knife shop as a young man and it was really great and it was interesting working in the mall and uh, that's actually where i met my my wife beverly because while i was working in the knife shop she was working at Friendly's, and that's even how we met. So interesting, all coming down to knives, and I'm reflecting back on this, and, you know, it's really some funny stuff. And at one point in the mall, we had a board that had on display all the Swiss Army knives, every model, and underneath with the Dymo, uh, you know, before P-Touch, you had those Dymos. You had to punch each letter out on a sticky label and we had labeled every model with magnets on the wall of all the swiss army knives that they offered but there were some blank magnet spots at the bottom in case they got new models so as a joke we made up because you know swiss army has the huntsman and the mechanic and the fisherman and the champion and they have all these models so we typed up one and we called it the mortician and we put the mortician under one of the empty magnets. And people would come in. You'd be surprised. I mean, can I see a mortician knife? And I'm like, oh, we're out of that right now. Sorry. Well, what's on the mortician? And we'd be like, oh, well, you know, it's like a putty knife and stuff for cleaning teeth and a comb. And we just make up stuff, you know, that the Swiss Army put on it. But, man, there was a big demand for a mortician knife that didn't exist, I can tell you. We had a good time with that. Well get back i'll continue the story of my journey with knives for over 30 years attorney evan knappen has seen what rotten laws do to good people that's why he's dedicated his life to fighting for the rights of america's gun owners a fearsome courtroom litigator fighting for rights justice and freedom an unrelenting gun rights spokesman Tearing away at anti-gun propaganda to expose the truth. Author of six best-selling books on gun rights, including Knappen on Gun Law, a bright orange gun law Bible that sits atop the desk of virtually every lawyer, police chief, firearms dealer, and savvy gun owner. That's what made Evan Knappen America's gun lawyer. 
Gun laws are designed to make you a criminal. Don't become the innocent victim of a vicious anti-gun legal system. This is the guy you want on your side. Keep his name and number in your wallet and hope you never have to use it. But if you live, work, or travel with a firearm, the deck is already stacked against you. You can find him on the web at evannappen.com or follow the link on the Gun Lawyer resource page. Evan Knappen, America's Gun Lawyer. You're listening to Gun Lawyer with attorney Evan Knappen. Available wherever you get your favorite podcasts. folks okay so back on the knife journey here and it's just interesting to me looking at how this grew and grew and grew and uh and it did because i met some interesting folks at the in the knife shop and i ended up going to a local small local gun show and uh, this was at the time when you could actually have these in jersey in a limited basis and I went to this uh, show, and that's where I, I met a guy about my age at the time, still a good friend of mine, Mark, and I know Mark's an avid listener. And that's how uh, I think it was about 17 at the time, or 18, and we definitely hit it off. And uh, Mark really knew a lot about knives, and I learned a lot from him. And he introduced me to what we affectionately call Cole's Book of Knives, Cole wrote the book on U.S. military knives. And that expanded my horizon into the whole area of military knife collecting. And when I would go to the flea markets, those days we could really find some great pieces very reasonably and used to great extent that book. The key was that book to know what to look for and what to buy. And from there, went to the larger shows, including... Forks of the Delaware uh, out in Allentown. And I've been going there since I was about 17 or 18 and uh, proud to be a life member. And that was only done because they honored me with becoming a life member and have purchased and acquired so many knives through the years. And about a year in February of 2000, that's when I wrote my first article for Blade magazine. And that was because a friend of mine at the gun club, his name was George Rasculus. George was a great guy. He was actually at Pearl Harbor. He was on the Oklahoma at Pearl. And when the torpedoes and the torpedo bombers hit the Oklahoma, the ship capsized and about you know 429 of the crew died uh, George was at one of the gun turrets and he told me he had to wait for the order before he was even allowed to abandon the ship and he jumped off the ship along with a number of others it was a 50-foot drop into burning hot water, you know, with oil and fire and just a mess. And he jumped off and was able to survive. And he had with him a pocket knife, a military issue pocket knife. And he carried that pocket knife throughout the entire war in the Pacific. Uh, 
He was then put on the Yorktown, believe it or not, and had to jump into the sea again. So the Japanese made him jump in twice. And uh, he threw battles throughout the whole Pacific War, and he carried this knife with him. And he gave me this knife. I mean, just, I was so honored to get, he's such a nice guy, and gave me this knife. So I wrote up his story and this knife for Blade Magazine, and it's a February 2000 issue. And I really wrote it as a tribute to George, but I just so appreciated it. And that started my knife writing career, writing all different articles and such for Blade Magazine and for the Knives Annual. And the Knives 2022, the annual, I have an article in the most current edition just out now on knife, the oldest knife laws in America. And I really did a lot of research to find the earliest knife laws. And it's very interesting, the history of the knife laws. But through the years since, I've written articles on uh, knives that are hidden in plain sight, the concealed knives that are part of other things. So you can't even tell they're a knife. Wrote about the miracle in New Hampshire that I'm going to talk to you about and Knives by gun makers and knuckle knives and uh, my good buddy Ed Fowler and about his knife making and about tacticals and assisteds and on and on. Every, the whole gamut. I wrote one piece, The Most Illegal Knife in America, which you may find interesting to know is the ballistic knife. I wrote articles on knowing your knife rights. I did a lot of articles on switchblades, did a whole series, three-part series on switchblades, talked about the worst knife jurisdictions and other knives of historic interest from other individuals. And I really had a great time writing all these and still do. And it grew in such a way that they asked me to write the book on U.S. knife laws, which I did. Uh, same company that published uh, publishes Gun Digest. I wrote the uh, U.S. knife laws book, all growing out of this. And, uh, you know, I attended the Blade Shows, which if you ever get a chance, it's the greatest knife show in the world is the Blade Show in Atlanta, Georgia. And you meet everybody who's anybody, and you get to see all the great products, all the great makers, all the great stuff. Man, what a great time the Blade Show is. I'd highly recommend going to the Blade Show. And in 2010, I spearheaded in New Hampshire what really became uh, an important, I think, moment in knife law history, working closely with knife rights, of which I'm proud also to be counsel to, we were able to get New Hampshire's knife laws repealed. New Hampshire had these knife laws from the 50s that banned switchblade, dagger, dirk, and stiletto. And these laws needed to go because they're archaic. 
And, uh, you know, the, the, the whole ban on knives came about, particularly switchblades, thanks to Hollywood and, you know, West Side Story and James Dean, et cetera. And, of course, America loves to ban symbols instead of actually doing something about substance. And so the switchblade in the 50s became the symbol of youth violence. And if we ban the symbol, well, that's how you cure the problem, right? Well. Of course not, but that's why these switchblade laws got passed, which are just another absurd violation of our Second Amendment rights. And in New Hampshire, it was kind of funny because not only did they have a ban on switchblades, but also daggers, dirks, and stilettos. And dirks, as some of you may know, dirks are either a short sword, a naval sword, which is not I don't believe what they were talking about, or the classic short stabbing weapon, Dirk, of which the most classic of all Dirks is the Scottish Dirk. And why is that so funny? Well, New Hampshire every year would run what's called the Highland Games, where thousands of people would come to New Hampshire carrying Scottish Dirks. And what could you buy and sell at the, at the, at the games? Scottish Dirks. So here there's a ban on Dirks, and it's, it's Dirk City. You know, it's, it's really... Time to go. So the law was repealed. And that repeal was done with Democrats in control of both houses and the governor's seat. And it was done unanimous. You see, New Hampshire has 400 reps, the third largest legislative body in the world, 400 in their house. 24 senators and a governor, 425 politicians, not a single vote against repealing the ban on switchblade, dagger, dirk, and stiletto. Since that time, knife rights has gotten many, many, I think it's 17 or 20, I lost count, of other states to repeal their knife laws. And it is really an incredibly effective effort with knife rights of the knife liberty movement. And I was proud to be a part of it and still am a part of it. So, so much so that uh, after New Hampshire and after that great victory there, I was uh, proud to receive from the uh, folks at uh, at Blade Magazine and at Knife Rights. I received the Publisher's Choice Award in 2010 and was given the Knife Rights Sharper Future Freedom's Point Award in 2010. And those mean a lot to me, not about just getting an award, but what they stand for. They stand for the the, the beginning of the modern knife liberty movement. And it's really have great, I'd, I'd encourage you to check out Knife Rights. We've had Doug Ritter, who's the head of Knife Rights, uh, on Gun Lawyer. Some of you may recall that show. And it's really great work. Because remember, the Second Amendment isn't the right to keep and bear guns. It's all about arms. And knives are just as much part of the Second Amendment as our firearms. I was proud to help also change and work toward changing the federal law 
where we, with help of other gun groups and other folks, uh, were able to get assisted openers specifically removed from the definition of switchblade under federal law. Now, of course, the ultimate goal, which we're getting towards, is repeal of even the federal knife laws. So there'll be no more federal knife laws and just getting rid of these state laws. And so you'll probably just have a handful of states, you know, of the of the known, the usual suspects, you know, that will have their anti-knife laws. But the overwhelming majority of America already has uh, removed their knife laws. And now we just need to get it done nationally and on a number of other states that need the reforms, but it's really doing very well. And throughout this, I've met and known really great people. And one of the people that I is a really good friend is is Ed Fowler. And Ed is uh, the field editor on Blade on on uh, Ed's great skill at making knives. And Ed is a master bladesmith, and he he focuses on the. Uh, what is called a high-performance knife, and he has just taken steel in its ability to cut and endure beyond anybody else I know, uh, even know of. And you, know, you can check out Ed Fowler's uh, knives. Most famous is the pronghorn, which is an absolute favorite of mine for everyday carry. And if you're going anywhere in the woods with any kind of job to do, you can't do any better than uh, Fowler Pronghorn, and uh, I'd highly recommend checking it out. And I had the honor to go for 10 days out in Riverton, Wyoming, and actually make knives with Ed. Not that I see myself in any way as a knife maker, but it really was an eye-opening experience to understand what goes into the making of knives and it just gave me such a deeper, better appreciation and understanding of the entire art of handmaking knives. It was it was just wonderful. So it's been an interesting journey, and of course, it's still continuing. From the day that my dad gave me his Swiss Army knife to all the things that I've been experienced and uh, able to enjoy and spread the word about knives and helping people to know their rights about knives and enjoying the entire field of knives. And I'm sure many of you do and have knives, and hopefully uh, this uh, gave you a little more insight and perspective. And I just want to remind you that this is Evan Knappen telling you that gun laws don't protect honest citizens from criminals, they protect criminals from honest citizens. Gun Lawyer is a Counterthink Media production. The music used in this broadcast was managed by Cosmo Music, New York, New York. Reach us by emailing evan at gun.lawyer. The information and opinions in this broadcast do not constitute legal advice. Consult a licensed attorney in your state.